Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. Welcome to Grape Top Church. I'm your host, Homer Hargrove, and uh, we've been going through this series, Winning in Life. And like I've been saying each week, uh, I feel like we best need to be reminded that God is for us and not against us, that he, he wants us to have an abundant life, a good life. We need to be reminded of that in the moments where we truly don't feel like we're winning in life. And it's funny, this last week I had a, a dream, a vivid dream. You know when you get those vivid dreams where you're like, you wake up and you're like, whoa. And, and uh, it was, this is what happened in the dream. Can I tell you all real quick? So in the dream, I was about to give a message, right? It's kind of like what I do for a living. And I take a lot of like importance in uh, mental preparedness and, you know, doing a message and all that. And right when I was about to, to speak, there's this, this big room and all these people were there. And in, in, the, in the dream, I was like, oh, wow, it's like a big, big crowd. There's a lot of people that came today. And as I start giving the message in this dream, all of the equipment starts malfunctioning. Like I'm talking about like TVs just randomly going off and playing sports and you know how dreams are weird where like you try to, uh, in the dream, I'm like kind of trying to ignore it, but then people start looking at the Cowboys game going on and I'm like, uh, and so I'm like losing my train of thought in the dream and then people are getting up and like trying to fix the equipment. And then once all the equipment issues start uh, getting resolved in the dream, I look back up and every time I look back up, there's less and less people. I'm like, oh man, like I'm bombing. <laughs> I'm not doing good. And then. In the dream, there's a point where I felt like I really like found my passion in the moment. And I was like really like pouring my heart out. And right when I felt like I was doing the best in the dream, I don't know where this lady just calls out, boring, <laughs> and then gets up and walks out. <laughs> I was like, dang, this is, this is really, it, I felt it. I felt, it's like those dreams where you feel like everything in the dream. I felt the emotional pain right there. And then at this point in the dream, there's only like three people left in the room. I was like, God dang. And I woke up. <laughs> and I was like, all right, let me get this message ready about winning in life. <laughs> winning in life. And so even though this was just a, a silly dream that I had that probably was based off of insecurities I have deep down inside, it, it reveals how often those insecurities we have deep down inside make us feel that we are destined to not win at life. That we're destined to fail. And just like this silly dream I, I'm talking about, we have those same kinds of thoughts, those same kinds of dreams so where we feel like everything's going to go wrong. And it makes us want to not even try. Y'all dig what I'm saying? Today, we're going to be talking about when life's not fair. When life is not fair. And this should really hit home for everybody here. Are y'all ready to feel like messed up today? <laughs> when life is not fair, and <laughs> I guess, uh, I hope you're emotionally prepared to feel so torn up inside <laughs> as you think about every emotional trauma and childhood experience you went through. No, I'm just joking. But when life is not fair, and we're going to be focusing on the story of Hannah and the book of First Samuel. And Hannah is in this unique predicament, and we're going to get down to it. She's a wife of a husband 
who the husband has two wives. So go figure. <laughs> and she has this, this horrible issue in her life to where she can't have children. And that issue, if you've ever experienced that in life, um, it's hard. It's, it's incredibly difficult. Me and my wife, it took us three years of trying with two miscarriages in between of, of trying to have children, which honestly, it feels like those three years at the time felt like an eternity. But now looking back and seeing how many people struggle with that, it's like a drop in the bucket compared to what some people go through. But even still at the time, not being able to have children is, is a bitter, bitter, hard, difficult experience. And we're going we're gonna to pick up in her story, and we're going to be focusing on this first point, which is hitting while you're down. Hitting you while you're down. I want us to think about those moments that feel truly unfair in your life. And I want us to understand this. The enemy will always try to destroy you when you are already discouraged. The enemy will always try to, to destroy you when you are already discouraged. And the moments where you're already get beat up and you're trying to find the hope, you're trying to get uh, the courage again to just like, you know what, it's just a fluke, let me try again. That is when the enemy will try to destroy you. Let's pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1-7. through 7. It says, Now there was a man from Ramathaim, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. That's who we're going to focus on today. And the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from the city yearly to worship, to sacrifice to the Lord of armies in Shiloh. So it's like Easter, right? Like when you, know, you go to the church once a year at Easter. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. And when the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, moreover, would provoke her bitterly. To irritate her. Whoa, whoa, wait. That's why people provoke you. <laughs> to irritate you. To irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. So we're seeing this, this situation where Hannah is going through this difficult situation. And it's normal in life to go through situations that are unfair. But what is exceptionally difficult is when you have no ability or control in making right what is unfair. That's the hardest part. It's one thing when you overcome, but it's a whole other thing when, when there's just nothing you can do about your unfair situation. And there are certain things that are outside of your control, and it is incredibly easy to become discouraged while you face the reality of your hardship. 
And it's usually in moments like these, this moment of discouragement when the attacks and criticisms of others can hurt the most. And now look, this is a weird family dynamic, right? We're talking about a man that has two wives. And I want us to all understand that the Bible, God tells his people to not take multiple wives. And so this is, this is not a moment where like, well, I guess, honey, uh, <laughs> maybe we should practice the Bible more often, right? No. And see, what a lot of, uh, a lot of people don't realize is, this is a, th- that's a curse. These, these men don't know what they're doing. It's like Solomon. He had over a thousand wives and concubines. <laughs> yeah, wow. What people don't realize is that's over a thousand mother-in-laws. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No wonder he wrote Ecclesiastes. It all makes sense now. But let's get down to the story. That we have, it says that Penina was her rival. Think of how uncomfortable this living situation is. It doesn't describe her as her co-parent. It doesn't describe her as co-wife. It says her rival. Man, that's a... I think this, it shows how clearly this is not a healthy dynamic that God did not intend. <laughs> her rival, and it said that he, she would provoke her, that she would provoke her, that she would provoke her. Have you noticed that people will often try to provoke you in the things that you cannot control? It's in the things that you cannot control that people will try to provoke you. And her intention was to irritate her, to get under her skin. Let us, let us all understand that that is the sole obligation of a rival, of an enemy, of, of someone that wants to criticize you, is they want to get under your skin. And it's like we, we're told all the way back in grade school, like, just ignore them. Just ignore them. They're, they're trying to get under your skin. What, what happens is people have this, this nasty, innate nature to where they know that they can control you by provoking you. And it gives them the sense of satisfaction of getting under your skin because they were able to affect you. Y'all dig what I'm saying? And so now that we understand this, that this provocation is to control Hannah, to irritate her, to get under her skin, I want us to understand that people do not anticipate how much of an impact they make in their words and their actions. Something that I say a lot. People don't anticipate how great their impact is over others. And people often have no perception of what other people are going through. Y'all feel what I'm saying? Think about those moments where you're just driving and someone cuts you off and you are already upset. But because you were going through something, that person just cutting you off, it made you lose it. That was like the, the hay that, the needle that broke the camel's back. And see, they had no idea that they're just in a hurry. They didn't even realize that what they were doing affected you so much. And there, we could go on in so many other examples that, of how when you're going through something, it makes every provocation that much more intense. And people have no perception of what other people are going through. So often they don't even realize how vicious they're coming across in their behavior when they speak or act thoughtlessly. You feel what I'm saying? And it becomes a snowball effect when you add spiritual energy that comes before and after it. 
I mean, just, people can be nasty all on their own, right? But now add the spiritual energy. Now add the fact that you call yourself a Christian and the devil hates you for that. And that the devil wants to use people and situations to intensify that provocation. Why? Because the devil wants to control us through provoking us. He wants to get under our skin. He wants us to react. The devil is described as crafty in Scripture. And he loves to incite strife, division, discouragement by using people and situations. And in understanding that the devil is crafty like that, I want to, I want to be clear that this doesn't excuse people. I'm not saying that people are off the hook in their decisions. We should still, though, strive to look at people the way Jesus did on the cross. I want us to understand that Jesus, when he was being taken away to, to, to be crucified, when he was being beaten with whips, and be, in the moment of the garden, he said that he could call on a legion of angels that would come to his aid, that would rescue him. They had all power and control to completely annihilate his rivals, those who were attacking him without cause. But instead, enduring every whip, enduring the nails in his hands and his feet, as he hung on the cross, he cried out, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And what it, it, it sets such a, a high bar of the kind of forgiveness to follow, doesn't it? But it's, it's really prophetic as well. Because one, in, in just simple terms, like I said, people don't anticipate how much of what they're doing is really affecting you. I mean, schoolyard bullies don't realize that you're going to, that you could turn into like one of those scream characters where you hunt them down as adults. You know what I'm talking about? You, you can make them the next best horror film as you go and find them as an adult. <laughs> but when we understand this, the prophetic implications to this, this part where Jesus says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, it, it also shows the spiritual implication of how the devil wants to use people in situations, that the devil will always try to use people in situations to incite bitterness and unforgiveness within us. Why? Because Jesus calls us to forgive others as we have been forgiven. It's the bait of Satan. Bitterness and unforgiveness is the bait of Satan to try to, to, try to steal the, the mercies of God from us by causing us to not show mercy to others. And on the cross, the Bible says that, that Satan was defeated, right? And we see that on the cross, it was an act of forgiveness for all mankind. It's symbolic and prophetic that when we forgive, even while being attacked, it grows your spirit. It causes you to be able to grow stronger, but it disarms the enemy. It, this kind of forgiveness disarms the enemy and its tactics. It, it takes away all ability to control you when you forgive. Just think about how that plays out in a moment. Trying to get under your skin, but instead of letting it control you, just forgive them. 
And nothing they can do can no longer upset you or irritate you or control you to where they're disarmed. They have nothing against, they can do nothing to you. That's how powerful forgiveness can be. And it disarms the enemy to where he can't use people against you either. It ties his hands. Forgiveness is one of the most powerful tools when it comes to saving you from a bitter life. From a bitter, untasteful life. And the opposite, the opposite is when you, if you've ever met someone, if you've been holding on to bitterness yourself, it eats away every part of you to live life so bitter. I mean, when I think about different relatives I have that really are bitter towards their ex-husband, I mean, it's like, they, it's like 20 years ago and they're still carrying them with them. That, that they're still controlling them years and years, decades later. But if they were to just forgive, doesn't make it right, doesn't justify anyone. But when you forgive, you release them. It's like you no longer have to live with that person in your heart. You no longer have to carry them around with you. You disarm them. So now that we understand how, to, how we should respond rather than react when we're attacked, even while we're down, let us go into this next idea, which is unheard and misunderstood. Unheard and misunderstood. There are certain times when only God knows how you feel. There are certain times when only God knows how you feel. Let's continue this story. It says, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 8, Then Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Men just always know what to say, right? <laughs> we always know just the right thing to say at the right time. Well, just don't feel sad. Just don't feel anxious. Oh, yeah, I know. But at least you have this. Look at the bright side. Y'all see how when you, when you see that in action, that really doesn't work. It doesn't make anyone feel better. It, it's like telling someone who's adopted, well, yeah, you don't know who your parents are, but you have a great family right here. It, it's, it's something that's besides the point. Y'all feel what I'm saying? It goes on to say, then Hannah got up after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorposts of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and said, Lord of armies, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your bondservant and remember me and not forget your bondservant, but will give your bondservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. And now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were quivering, but her voice was not heard. Eli is the priest at the time, remember? So Eli thought that she was drunk. And then Eli said to her, how long will you behave like a drunk? Get rid of your wine. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman despairing in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your bondservant a useless woman, for I have spoken until now of my great concern and provocation. 
Man, what a perfect imagery of what uh, people, how easily people get hurt by church. <laughs> I mean, this is, we see this moment where this priest can't even recognize someone is trying to connect with God the best that they can. It makes me think about how many people have tried to go to church out of that desperate moment of trying to find God in some way. They don't even know how to pray. They're just like, I just need God. I don't know what to do. And just like Hannah, they have some deacon, some usher, somebody, some leader in the church come up to them and share their criticisms. Well, if you're going to come to the house of God, you need to dress right. Well, you need to take off your hat. Think about all the stupid stuff that are told to people that are desperate trying to find God, all for the sake of religion. Here Hannah is pouring her out, uh, and she goes through this moment of where she's not understood by the person closest to her, her husband. And then, as she is doing her best to pour her heart out to God, she is misjudged by the spiritual leader around her. And these two areas of influence are typically the most powerful in our lives. Our family and our church. Those are just two of the strongest influences of our lives. And when you feel unheard or misunderstood by either one of these areas, that is when you will feel extremely isolated. That is when you can feel the most lost. Especially if you're feeling misjudged, misunderstood, unheard by both at the same time. And it's in these sad and unique moments that we not only desire so badly for God to speak to us, but we need deep within our souls for God to tell us something. You ever just needed that? You yearned for that? For God to just speak to you something. Something where you just knew that God was telling you something. Even if it was just like, it's going to be okay. But anyone could tell you that. But at this point, you need God to tell you that. That's what Hannah is desperate for. And you must know that in those kinds of moments that God hears your prayers, even when you can't find the words to pray. Just as Hannah poured her heart out without saying a single word, the Bible says first that she was pouring her heart out. And then it says she didn't say a single word. Just as she was pouring her heart out, and even though she didn't sing, say a single word, God heard her. And just as God hears her, she, he also hears you. And the other thing that you must know is that God understands you in a way that no one else can. That God understands you in a way that no one else can. In fact, Scripture tells us that one of the, the aspects, one of the spirits of God is the spirit of understanding. God has the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of knowledge. So what is the spirit of understanding? It is this unique, omniscient ability to be able to understand you to your core. To where he understands the depths of your anguish and the heights of your joy. In a way that no other human being any other created thing could possibly understand. In fact, he knows when something is truly harder for you than it is for someone else. God knows when something is harder for you than it is for someone else. 
He knows your upbringing. He knows your traumas. He knows your experiences. He knows when life was not fair to you. He knows and he understands. He knows and he understands. And that is why you should allow yourself to trust him. That is why you should allow yourself to trust him. That you should pour your heart out to him. Did you know that scripture literally says to cast your worries and your cares unto God because he cares about you? That seems like an overly simplistic thing. But that God cares about you. He understands you. And so that leads me to the last part of our our story. And that is choosing to rise above. And Hannah's story ends great. It, I want us to understand that it's a choice to overcome adversity, not a reaction. It's a choice to overcome adversity, not a reaction. What, what happens is Hannah gets her boy. It's like this beautiful story. And she says, as soon as he's weaned, I'm going to give him, I'm going to dedicate him to the Lord as soon as he's weaned. And so around those times, I mean, today with our third kid, as soon as Homer was one years old, I, I told Lauren's like, cut him off, <laughs> cut that boy off. He, that's enough of this. There, when we had both Joy and Jules together, Joy was two and Jules was one. And poor Lauren, this might be, you know, don't imagine it too detailed, but two babies at once breastfeeding. And it was just, I, I felt just so useless as a husband. <laughs> And she's just like, this is horrible. And I was like, dude, this, <laughs> that's an understatement. Cut, cut them off. And so when we think of the time a boy is supposed to be weaned, then I'm like, so she's going to send just a two-year-old <laughs> to, to the temple? That, and if that was Eli, he would have probably rejected the, <laughs> like, oh, that, that's okay. Just keep him. <laughs> we're, we're good. That, in fact, in other parts of the world, even now, the average age of weaning is six to seven. It, we, we're a, a blessed, blessed nation to where we're, we're used to weaning at one and two. But in other parts of the world, that's their main source of nourishment. And so it's guesstimated around this time and region that the time he was weaned was around six or seven. So let's say six. And, and so around this time, it says, and it also says that Hannah also had other children. So it was like this breakthrough moment in her life. To where not only was she given the promised boy that she's going to dedicate, but that she had other sons and daughters. And now she's having all these children. And at this part of the story, it says for, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 27 through 28, For this boy I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my request, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord and it worships the Lord there. It goes on to say, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11, Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy continued to attend the service of the Lord before Eli the priest. So this is usually where every story ends in a preaching, and we just close our eyes and say, See, it all works out. Just trust God and believe. Let's do it. You know what? Let's do an offering call. I want us to transition to Samuel. Let's transition to Samuel. And we see that God answered Hannah's prayer. She gave birth to Samuel, around six years old. And 
imagine for a moment, let's look at Samuel's life, a six-year-old being told that they're no longer going to live with their parents, their family, their mom, dad, brothers, and sisters. My, my oldest is four years old, Joy. And I can't imagine saying, all right, Joy, mommy and daddy love you so much. We're always going to love you. But now you're going to spend the rest of your life here at the church, okay? It's going to be all right. We're going to come visit you once a year every Easter. And you know what? Mommy's, mommy said she's going to make you a new coat every year. And we're going to see how big you've gotten. We love you, okay? Say bye to your brothers and sisters. And I want us to keep in mind, as Samuel's telling his parents bye, his brothers and sisters goodbye, to go live in this temple, this church, with strangers. I mean, once a year, for six years, they're still strangers. And we might think, well, it's the house of the Lord, right? I mean, church is a good thing. At least he's going with where there's priests and godly people, though, right? And so let's just, let's just unpack this story a little bit deeper. Let's take a look at what kind of people Samuel was going to be moving in with was like. It says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were useless men, and they did not know the Lord. So about the average church, right? <laughs> There's other scripture that says, that was funny, right? There's other scripture that says, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 17, And so the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord disrespectfully. What, what they would do, just some of the little glimpses we get, is while people were making their sacrifices to God, making their actual sacrifices, burning uh, their, this meat as a sacrifice to the Lord, that whether it's uh, being burned or boiled, they, were also, they would burn all of the fat, the best part of the meat, right? And as they were making their sacrifices, that the, that the sons of Eli would send servants to go and take the, the meats before they were cooked so that they could eat them themselves. And... They would be just taking all the things that were supposed to be dedicated to God and just uh, engor uh, gorging themselves on it instead. So they're stealing, in a sense, from God himself. And the, not only that, but it goes on to say, when Eli tries to confront them, it says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard about everything that his sons were doing to all of Israel. They would even threaten the people whenever they try to s stop them from stealing from them. They said, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to take it by force. So you got like this mob of priests, much like today. And it says he was very old and his sons were doing this to all of Israel. And they slept with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Again, a lot like today. And so he said to them, why are you doing such things as these, the evil things that I hear from all these people? And so we're seeing that these men are wicked, vile, nasty men. And they were taking advantage of the girls that were trying to be like the little altar girls at the, at the temple. That they're literally taking advantage of everyone around them. Abusing their spiritual leadership. I mean, I don't know how many stories do we need to hear today of these like huge mega churches with another falling out. I mean, the last one was Hillsong. Did, Hillsong. They made that song Oceans, dog. Like that. That song was, remember when it came out, it was beautiful. And it came out that the, 
that the pastor, the senior pastor, the founder, Brian Houston, was caught going into a hotel room with some other woman, and so they they uh, resigned him as a senior pastor. And it's like when we hear stories like that now, it's like oh, nothing. And see, we're we're seeing just a glimpse of how vile the situation is that Samuel is going to be moving in with. These are like genuine dirt bags. And not only are they just in this spiritual authority position, they're complete hypocrites, but these are also the men who are delegating the care and responsibility of Samuel. It's not just the fact that Samuel now has to live with these people, but they are in charge of his care. They are in charge of his care. At one point, we see Samuel laying on the floor in front of the, the lampstand as he was unable to sleep. And see, it doesn't give a lot of emotional clarity of what Samuel is going through. But in this point of the story, everyone else is asleep, Eli is asleep, and Samuel is just up, lying on the floor, looking at the lampstand. I want you to just imagine for a moment that this is turmoil, what he's going through. He was, he was thrust into this, this completely insecure living condition. And the story of unfairness goes from Hannah and just crashes over this boy, Samuel. And he had every reason to hate God. Think about that for a moment. We talk, if you've ever met somebody hurt by church, they typically never want to go back to church. With good reason. It's hard for people to see God outside of the institution of church. He had every reason to hate God. He had every reason to spite his mother, his parents. And he had every reason to go down a path of anger, rage, and evil. And as he lied there, it, it shows us that he chose not to go down that path. Instead, as he lied on the floor, he put his hope in God, not his anger. He valued his life through the struggle, and he, hurt, he learned how to live by his choices rather than by his reactions. He saw firsthand through the lives of these wicked people around him of what he didn't want to become. See, that's, what, that's where the shift is of choosing what kind of person you want to become. You either react and become what you are around or you respond and choose to become the very opposite. It's all about our choices. And Samuel, even though he was raised by the worst priests of the nation, he became one of the greatest priests, even one of the greatest prophets of all of Israel. In fact, he became the first prophet to usher in a king for the nation. He rose above his situations, he rose above adversity, and he rose above the unfairness he was dealt in life, and he became something greater than anyone could expect, all but because... He chose to rise above even when life was unfair. Even when life was unfair. It makes me think about moments when 
you're, you're just put in unfair situations. It makes me think about uh, the moments where I felt like I had no family. And I remember that was the very motivation when I was uh, 18 years old, or 19, when I, I knew I wanted to, to get married at such a young age because I didn't ever had a family that I felt close to like that, and I wanted to start a family. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And m- most of y'all uh, I've shared before, I've had really brutal experiences in church. I've been hit on the chest by a pastor before because I was late to a meeting. <laughs> I never done none of that to y'all, right? <laughs> Maybe that's why I put a sign out that says, you made it just in time. No matter what time <laughs> you got to church today, you made it on time. So many of you describe your experience at church as the most accepting place you've found when it comes to your, your spiritual pursuit. See, those things aren't just by accident. Those are choices. Because we've experienced the opposite. And rather than forsaking church altogether, we decided we want to make a church as different than what we've experienced. And it's been beautiful. Whatever it is for you in your life, whatever feels unfair, whatever adversity you've been facing, can you see the possibility of God's intervention being able to change maybe one of your greatest pains into, some, uh, into this motivation to your greatest purpose? I'm not saying that God destines our pain. I don't necessarily believe that. I think that pain is just a part of living in this world. But what I do believe is that he is able to turn any pain into a purposeful thing. And so with that being said, I want us to all close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you're here today and you need to make this decision in your life, you feel like there's something within you that just knows you need this connection with God, this connection with Jesus Christ, and you haven't made a decision like that before. If that is you, and you want to make that decision today, you don't want to put it off any longer, you just feel like this is what you need to do and start this relationship with God. If that's you, with every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. I see your hands. I see your hands. So just there to yourself, I want you to just talk to Jesus. I want you to lift up your choices right now. Your choice of rising above your situations and adversity and choosing to trust in God anyway. I want you to pour your heart out to God, just as Hannah did, and just have a genuine conversation with Jesus because he understands you. And one of the most powerful things I want you to do is I want you to disarm the enemy and I want you to forgive. I want you to forgive whether it's a person or whether it's an unfair situation. I want you to just forgive and release that. Because it's only when you do that you can move on. It's only when you do that you can grow. And it's just like this simple doorway of forgiveness that all you have to do is walk through it. 
The Bible says in the book of Romans that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he says he is, surely you shall be saved. All that scripture is saying is that if you have an authentic conversation with Jesus yourself, that that's all it takes to start a relationship with him. It doesn't mean that we're, that we're instantly made perfect. All it means is that we have changed directions and we're walking towards God now. And it's one step at a time. Just have that conversation with him. Now, for the rest of you, if you're here and you feel like this is just exactly what you needed to hear today, maybe you've been focused on this idea in your heart about it being unfair. You've been recognizing that certain things are genuinely harder for you. Maybe you've even been feeling envious over simple things. You see other people in their families and you feel envy. Thinking, well, if my family was like that, it would be easier. If my parents were like that, it would be easier. Whether it's that, whether it's about being misunderstood, whether it's about making a choice today, if you feel like this message was what you needed to hear, with every head bowed and eye closed, I want you to raise your hand. Amen. See all your hands. So I'm going to just pray for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you minister to each person here today. Lord, you knew exactly what they needed to hear. And I pray that you cause your Holy Spirit to manifest in their lives. I pray for the power of God to impact them in their heart, in their situations. I pray that you put wind in their sails, that you refresh them, that you encourage them, that you help them to get up, to move forward, and that they wouldn't move forward with discouragement, that they would move forward with victory in their soul with courage, with boldness, and that they would know that God is with them. Encourage your people today in Jesus' name. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.